Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, the conversations between our real-life double act of the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's him over there, and the economist and author Will Page, that's me over here. And this is what we do for you. We lay out the inconvenient truths about how the business and financial markets really work. But this week, with the two of us separated by the Atlantic Ocean, Rich is in Pittsburgh, I'm in North London, I thought it'd be a good idea just to buckle down and try and understand what's going on in the markets today. Are we out of the woods? Are we going into the woods? Where is this market going? We've got 40 minutes of piercing bubbles and we'll be back in a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, Richard, I know there's a lot on your mind, and there's a lot on my mind too. And I guess one thing that's on our audience's mind is, are we out of the woods? Are we about to experience headwinds? Is there turbulence ahead? Should I just stick my money in a tracker fund or shove it in a 5% high interest bank account and play safe? Walk us through the landscape as you see it right now. Grab the mic and let rip. So, Will, your former boss, Gordon Brown, and I'm Brun, sure I'm- Brun used to talk about the poly crisis. And when I look at all the bad juju and craziness that's building in the markets, I feel like that poly crisis has entered the exponential age. We're in a poly crisis. We've got runaway inflation in core areas like food. We've got oil prices spiking. We've got huge consequential elections coming up in the U.S. and U.K. We've got Russia, Ukraine. We've got the China economy showing a real estate collapse and China stocks in a bear market. We've got the private credit markets, record credit card and corporate debt, and a resumption of payments of debt for things like U.S. student loans, which are only about $1.3 trillion. (laughs) And it feels like we are in vintage territory for seeing trouble with bubbles, that we're going to have a heck of a lot of it coming up. Now, if we look back to 2008 and, and the 15 years since then, the global financial crisis obviously immiserated a lot of people and definitely widened inequality after the policy of 0% money for 15 years. You had huge national debts, high taxes, and, and man, my experience this last week, prices in the U.S. and Canada, specifically in cities like New York and Toronto, are nuts. And then you go elsewhere and it's crazy cheap. So it feels like we're getting all the flavors of of the climate emergency right now in the financial markets. The wildfires in Canada, the earthquakes, the floods in New York City, the hurricanes in California. It feels like all of this is going to blow through the financial markets. And what I want to look at 
with all these mini crises is whether they're tumbleweeds, the nasty critters that are scratchy <laughs> and, and awful and blow through, or they're icebergs where the problem we see is really only about 10% of the real issue. I hear it. So if I said to you, have you got any smoke signals? You say, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count them, basically. Yeah, we're seeing quite a lot go on. And there's even a uh, ratcheting up of the government activity vis-a-vis -vis some of the dominant tech companies. For example, there's been all this press about the Amazon uh, antitrust lawsuit brought by the FTC and Lena Khan. Now, I know that Lena Khan is, in many respects, an otherwise grossly an in inexperienced FTC chair. She's in her mid-30s. She's a journalist, effectively. She's written a, a one law paper about Amazon. But I felt that the criticisms about her competence or otherwise was mistaking her position as kind of a symbolic figurehead. And you were quoted on this, generation. right? You were quoted on this. Well, no, no. This was just in comments. But, you know, I, I see her as a, as a generation coming through that's basically started to become very skeptical about corporate power. And behind her really doing the work is the FTC's top attorneys painstakingly assembling evidence of a Sherman antitrust violations like exclusionary behavior or tying or predatory pricing and not really consumer harm. Lena Khan is just the front woman and she's attracting the vitriol of big business, but she's not the one who's really doing the work. And whether indeed, whether people like Amazon and its services is not an issue. Yeah. It's a question of whether you're going to enforce the antitrust laws that have been on the books, which have for years and years, as we covered in the podcast with Jesse Eisengard talking about the Chicken Shit Club, skewed authority towards private interests. And I think that's a very interesting moment where you're starting to see the state, as we talked about last week with China, try to wrest back some control from the corporate sector. And it's, we'll, see, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about Lena Khan's role in America of just the gap between monopoly and monopsony has narrowed somewhat. And so many mm. people have gone through an economics degree mm. and either studied and forgotten or never even covered the word monopsony, but are beginning to learn its role and relevance today. So it's almost like the textbooks are catching up with the reality, in my opinion. Now, there's various rabbit holes I want to go down in part one here, but one big one in particular, when I looked at those 20,000 odd mentions of the word bubbles in the Financial Times, is private markets. And help me out here, assume no prior knowledge, and for our audience's benefit, mm -hmm. a public market, presumably that's those big banks that tower above the city in Canary Wharf, the logos that we know from the high street, Barclays, HSBC, private markets. Just build us up for me. What is the private market when we see it being referred to in the press? So this is one of these issues where I think it really is an iceberg, because the point about those banks, which many of which are listed on the stock market and every quarter have to come to the market and disclose their balance sheet, both assets and liabilities. Here, we're talking about untold trillions of debt, which is effectively hidden from view. It's sitting in private equity firms. It's sitting in hedge funds. And I'm by no means an expert in this, but it needs to be linked with a later discussion we're going to have about private market valuations. The loan book sitting with all the largest investment banks, two hedge funds and private equity firms that get invested in the form of even more debt, generating fees for banks, of course, but they're built on top of an incredibly flimsy and unstable or even completely ephemeral stream of profits. Now, this is kind of what we saw in the global financial crisis, all these derivative trades on the real estate market and mortgages that turned out to be garbage. And our, my concern here is that we've, we're we're trading based on expected solidity 
But we're, the solidity is a field of gravel sitting on the top of a giant fissure between two tectonic plates where we know there's going to be an earthquake. <laughs> we have no visibility or transparency into those private market actors. And they could go bust and force the kind of systemic risk that we as taxpayers might be asked to bail out. But we've got no ability to see that coming. And it, it's kind of like, all these companies are walking across a minefield in a straight line. And you know, some are going to get blown up. So the Silicon Valley's banks of the world get blown up. But each of those individual firms walking across the minefield is making too damn much money to worry about whether they're going to get blown up. They're just pumping up the bubble. And there's so many derivative enablers, whether it's lawyers or accountants or bankers or politicians who need funding from those wealthy folks to call time and pull away the punch bowl. And the fact that you have global banking regulators now warning about the private credit markets tells you it's already happening yeah. and well down the track and probably too late. This is what worries me. So in public markets, for our listeners, if you're investing with Hargreaves Lansdowne or Vanguard in the US, there's a degree of no-known. There's instability, there's a risk of bubbles, and there's a risk of troubles, but it's a no-known market. I guess what you're saying is the private markets are known unknowns. I mean, you really are well, at the races here. Indeed. And one of the brilliant sleight of hand misdirection tricks of private equity, not only gaming the tax system, but with the carried interest principle that they never really sell an asset, they just carry an interest in it. And as long as they have debt, they can write off the debt against the, the, the quote unquote profits they make. But one of the big sleights of hand has been to hide all this from public view. Whereas again, all those listed companies have to report quarterly or half yearly and if something is going wrong, you can progressively see it going wrong, or something's going well, you can progressively see the improvement and invest behind it. But we just don't know what's out there in that private credit market. It could be so vast, and its tentacles stretch, obviously, into, as we learned about in the Fergal Sharkey episode, into things that touch our daily lives, like utility companies, I the know. water companies in London. That's where the financial crisis becomes a real economic crisis. Mm. So- Second on my agenda here is to tee up this correlation causation question. There's a lot of books written about this, some great cartoons written about crazy correlation causations. The person who invented economics, David Hendry, a Scotsman, worked out that you could correlate rainfall in the Amazon with recessions in America for shits and giggles, but that kind of exposes the challenges that we have in econometrics. There seems to be a lot of correlation talk just now. Interest rates are coming down and inflation are coming down. They may be linked. They may have nothing to do with each other. Um, we're looking at bond markets and equity yields as well. Are these linked or are they just spurious? Uh, do you think there's a real risk that we're sort of investing a lot of time, effort, money, proving what is essentially bad correlations? Uh, look, I think we're in, on the subject of correlations and especially economic forecasting, we are practically back to slaughtering the goat and looking at its entrails to figure out what's going on. I mean, the famous George Soros theory of reflexivity, which it's not what's actually happening, but what the market expects to happen. And therefore, people are, are trading the reaction to the story, not the story itself. And uh, we're all looking at these markets through these incredibly refracted prisms. It's a beauty contest. It's a famous beauty contest. It's not which of the beauty pageants do you think is most attractive, but people say, which of these beauty pageants do you think the judges will think is most attractive? Indeed. And also, it's a, there's a duration or time lag element to it, which is very important. So those interest rate rises are supposed to curb inflation. 
but it happens with a 12 to 20 month lag. Yeah. So it's not like you put the interest rates up and immediately everyone reacts. And anyway, that's been done quite progressively in over the last 18 months from 0% up to 5%. And some people think it'll go to seven. But we have to wait a lot longer for the real impact to be seen. Now, you can also draw some very strong correlations between extraneous events outside of the market. The El Nino uh, weather event, which changes uh, patterns of, of, of fish stocks and, and various harvests and changes the weather and therefore has an impact on the real economy. The, the, the Russia-Ukraine yep. war, where let's not call it a special operation, the war, which has massively impacted global grain supplies. And there, we could be looking at something that was discussed quite extensively at the FT Weekend Festival, uh, not on my panel, but on other ones, a, a global food crisis by 2030. So there are many of these correlations, which you could say are spurious, you could discount, you could leave outside your purview, but are starting to intrude on the real world financial markets. And one classic example of that is, is the insurance business. And boy, I would not want to be sitting inside Swiss Re or Munich Re or any of these giant reinsurers or Lloyds trying to figure out just how much they will be needing to pay out with all these climate crises and seeing flooded streets in New York and wildfires in Canada and hurricanes in California. I hear you. And just back to bad correlations, I really do think we have to step back and think about the, the interest rate decisions that we have. I mean, we could literally have a situation where there's zero interest rates, zero inflation, a war happens between Russia and Ukraine, energy prices go through the roof, we have inflation, and then we work out how to resolve the energy crisis, maybe even work out how to resolve the war, and inflation goes back to zero. The actions of the central bank could have no effect on inflation. It's really interesting to think mm. about that. Like just what you do with interest rates does not affect inflation because inflation is a supply side phenomena. It's not a demand side phenomena. Well, it, it could also be quite simply that those impacts that were expected and could be measured are overwhelmed by, as Winston Churchill would say, events, my dear boy, events. <laughs> So if the pendulum is swinging from the upbeat Pittsburgh optimist to the doer pessimistic Scotsman here, let's just read out a headline. When I see a headline which says, Moody's warns of systemic risk from the leveraged lending market, should I be thinking, bat down the hatches, cash out now? So again, the issue with systemic risk in leveraged lending, just to decode those words for everyday listeners, the systemic risk is is a reference to the fact that there are dominoes that could fall. So many of the lenders out there are lending to many projects, all of which will suffer from the same lack of demand to, to, to pay back. For, let's, let's make a simple example. Imagine if you were building hundreds of shopping malls across the UK and then the pandemic hit. You would lend a lot of money so that some a, a mall operator like Westfield could build loads and loads of shopping centers, but all of a sudden no one was going to the malls anymore. That would be a good example of systemic risk because it would be unlikely that there would be a single lender which would have supported all those shopping malls. It's usually some portion of the loan book of all the banks, as well as the invisible hedge funds or, or private credit institutions that are loaning that money. So that's the sort of system level stuff. And the leveraged bit is that obviously if you loan money out uh, and you know you've got a, a stream of income coming in, you might look to 
loan the same money out again because you can accept, expect a stream of income coming in from somebody else. And again, so the idea is that there's not a, there, there might be a single underlying asset, but there may be many claims on that asset that, at the same time that you never expect to get called in because you think the income from that asset is stable. But if that income becomes unstable, then that's where you start to see systemic risk. And look, I think when you see the Moody's and other agencies putting the U.S. on downgrade watch, you've had this sort of banana Republicans holding the government to ransom over the budget yeah, and what whether there's going to be a government shutdown for pet projects. And you see the same systemic risk in social media. There's a brilliant BBC documentary about TikTok frenzies where people will hear about a child disappearing in some small town and all of a sudden they will launch their own pet theories and they'll go viral and hundreds of people will show up at these strange locations looking for them. They're just frenzies. And the systemic risk is really that we have a collective freakout over, for example, as we're seeing in China right now, the largest property developer Evergrande, which has been removed from being quoted on the stock market, just was relisted and then immediately plunged again. And the fact is that everybody is looking to rush for the exits, but no one can get out. And, and so that, I think, reflects the sort of systemic risk that, that Moody's is warning about. They'll always be the last to warn because, again, their yeah. clients are the issuers of the debt and, and they don't want to, they don't want to disavow anybody of, of taking out the debt that they're, that pays their bills in the end. Yeah. If these start raising concerns, and I'm tempted to think there's been concerns all along. Now. One of the best pieces of financial advice you ever gave me and our audience was just, if you're going to invest, look at big tech, the big guns, because they sit on so much cash, they can buy up their own stock. Seems intuitive enough. And in volatile times, that ensures an element of stability is embedded into the stock, a great store of value, as you once called it. What about the small caps? We're hearing this term small cap blues gone. Is this the fact that if you're small, you're more exposed to market volatility than if you're big? Well... So one of the things we've, we've been saying about big tech is they have such an incredible pool of resources that they're able to spend $220 billion of R&D in the last 12 months, invest $160 billion of CapEx because they've generated $280 billion of cash from $1.6 trillion of sales. So they have the ability to invest through the peaks and troughs of cycles. Now, the lessons of NFTs, Bitcoin, and all of those other high-flying ideas that we've had voiced that have been Which we, we called trouble. out first. If there was a bubble we at first, we pierced on. the NFT bubble first. We have to lay claim to so, that. The lesson is always look for the exits. And as a, a famous William S. Burroughs quote once said, oh, watch whose money you pick up. <laughs> as also equally famous uh, quote from the founder of Fidelity was that you only make profits when you sell. So... Look, personally, I, I took my eye off the ball on some stocks that I had bought and they were doing okay, but I wasn't following them closely. And then they had collapses. Now, this is doubly so for small cap stocks because with them, you simply don't have the liquidity to dump a large position. And also, you don't have the constant scrutiny for both positives and negatives that we see applied to the biggest companies in the market. And generally keeps the share prices locked in place because any given day you might have a, a positive or a negative piece of news about one of the big tech companies or the big pharma or, or other large companies. You hear about them a lot. The small companies, you don't hear them and they don't get that same level of scrutiny. You're right. You're so right. Just you, quickly on that. I mean, you're right because when you look at Apple, you hear some bad news about Apple in China. The very next day, there's some good news about Apple in India. It kind of bounces off each other. 
Yeah, but what you see in those small caps is a greater risk of blowups when a company might disappoint because there's no one to step in because too few people have deeply scrutinized the underlying assets, the performance of the business, knowing the management, having confidence in it. They just don't get the oxygen in the market. At one point uh, last year, and it may well be true now, Apple in its market value was larger than the entire Russell 2000 small cap index in the States. And the junior market of AIM, remember that? The alternative investment market with their relaxed listing requirements that was supposed to be the happy home for all these clever startups. Most of the companies there are part of what I call a zombie apocalypse. They floated. <laughs> they're sort of walking dead. The, the stocks have collapsed. And now they're very, it's very hard to attract capital into these micro cap sectors because no one knows what's going to get them into the public eye that people want to spend money and time and attention to understand the stocks and then potentially buy them. So it's just much easier when you look at the largest stocks in the market to have a view of whether a Glaxo or an AstraZeneca is doing well or, or the mining stocks or the retailers. Those are companies that you know will always have a large investor base and therefore don't have the same level of volatility and risk the small caps do. And it's going to be very difficult for in terms of capital formation going forward because there just isn't an appetite for investing in these early stage companies. That's been largely taken over by the VCs investing in startups. And now getting those companies out to the market, as you know, a lot of them blow up quite frequently and quite badly. So let me join the dots here so we close out part one. I mean, if I split the market into three components, the real economy that we work and live in, and then the financial economy that's public, and then the financial economy that's private, what I'm sensing here is if there are troubles bubbling, they're bubbling in a place where we don't know an awful lot about in that private economy. And the problem that happens when you have troubles bubbling in the private markets is you don't quite know how long they've been bubbling for. You don't quite know how big those bubbles are going to get. And you don't quite know how people are going to get out. And when you have that, you have an uncertainty that could lead to a systemic risk. I mean, let's just repeat, the real economy seems to be doing all right. We could be back to our normal world of 2.5% economic growth, 2.5% inflation, 5% interest rates, lend at 6 Back to those normal days that we used to govern our lives. It might fall back in place, but it feels to me that we do have troubles bubbling in a market where we know very little about. So to quote Donald Rumsfeld in part two, I want to go deeper and try and understand these known unknowns of bad behavior in the private markets. We'll be back in a moment. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble, where I'm working through, like a student in front of his professor, Richard Kramer's views about where the market seems to be going. And if there's troubles, are those troubles bubbling? And where do they appear to be bubbling? To wrap up what we've learned in part one, if it's anywhere, it's in the private markets, where there's a high degree of ambiguity as to how long those bubbles have been bubbling for, how big those bubbles are going to get. And when I read headlines like... UK regulator to launch a review of private market valuations. Let me just build out where we've got to. We have this weird, mysterious world of the private market which does its own dance, which doesn't have the referee. And they presumably have to mark their own book. Like, they have mm-hmm. to decide how much those assets are worth. And now we have regulations saying, well, we might have to take a second look at how you mark your own book and place those valuations. When you see those headlines, do you begin to worry? I have to reserve the right to go on a bit of a rant here, because anytime (laughs) I hear a company talk about transparency, you know they're trying to hide something. (laughs) When they say we're committed to transparency, what that means is we don't want you looking and finding out the real story. It's like that famous line from my all-time favorite film, All the President's Men, don't claim you're innocent when nobody accused you of being guilty. Of course I'm transparent. Nobody nobody said you weren't. Right. Or as the, the favorite line in our family, especially between myself and my wife. I didn't say it was your fault. I'm just blaming you. So, <laughs> so look, we saw this company in Germany called Rocket Internet, which was a listed VC firm run by a couple of German brothers whose novel approach was to copy successful U.S. internet businesses in Europe. And the way they supported their valuation was owning 20% of a company that they had invested in, they would sell a half a percent or 1% to one of their friends in another VC firm at an incredibly inflated valuation. So again, if if I had a business that was valued at a billion dollars, but I was willing to sell 1% of it to you for a for $100 million and you were willing to help me out, maybe give me a kickback or I was invested in your fund. And all of a sudden the business went from being worth a billion to 10 billion, because we based it on last portfolio valuation. The thing, the, the, the amount that the greatest fool or greater fool of the day was willing to pay for it. Now, the simplest way to understand this is it's called marking your own homework. Now, there are standards about when accountants need to apply valuation logics or companies need to reveal which classes of assets, for example, are what they call unobservable valuations, so not private market or public market valuations, but the sort of unobservable, hard-to-value assets. But this is a big topic because there's billions, if not trillions, of value tied up in companies that are sitting on the balance sheets of hedge funds, venture capitalists, and private equity firms, for which the only evaluation is whatever the last person who bought into the company was willing to pay for it. And by not making any sales, as the bubble collapses, they may claim that it's still worth that valuation, even though we know it wouldn't sell for that price. And, and I think this is a long, again, a long overdue investigation. I think your good friend and my f- co-panelist at the FT Weekend Festival, James Anderson, got caught out uh, quite badly in his fund because he had a lot of very lofty private market valuations that when they saw the light of day in the public markets, as we just saw with Instacart, peaking at a $39 billion private market valuation, but floating in the market when it finally came to market at $10 billion. And they had to do that because they had to pay the, the tax liability on their internal shares. 
you're seeing that gap get narrowed wow. and you're going to see a lot of VCs and private equity firms have to take write downs or markdowns on the high flying assets they had bought on hope. Richard, I want to go down a rabbit hole a bit further on this topic. It, what you're describing with private market valuations, marking your own homework, kind of reminds me of a concept you brought to light in March last year, our most popular podcast to date, where we debunked NFTs at the height of their market with the term wash trades. Now, just to remind our audience how a wash trade might, might work, Richard might have some quaint Pittsburgh wash trade that only people from his borough would be interested in. And I could have a quaint Scottish Borders NFT that only people from my part of the country, including the sheep, would be interested in. And we trade them up, not actually exchanging any value. We trade for 1,000, we trade for 2,000, trade for 3,000. What's the rule of an auction? The sucker's curse. The person who wins an auction pays more than anyone else for it. Somebody else sees us trade up this value of NFTs and says, wow, they bought them for 1,000, they're trading for 10. I'll offer 20. I have to say, the amount of audience feedback we got on your explanation of the wash trade, March 2022, was phenomenal. Are private market valuations just wash trades by another name? Well, not necessarily, because I know, for example, I'm invested in a number of businesses as a quote-unquote angel investor, and I, I understand that I might lose everything, but I'm backing an entrepreneur and hoping that they can make something of the capital that me and a, and a bunch of other people have given them. So it's a question of whether those entrepreneurs then try to raise money at some astronomical valuation. Would be wonderful for me uh, if I could then dispose of my stake, but it doesn't really help if they raise money at an astronomical valuation, but they're still a struggling business. So my, my point is that there needs to be some value of the underlying asset, not just simply it being a speculative vehicle for two folks to play ping pong with an asset until they find a greater fool to take it off their hands. But, but the people you bring in to do those private market valuations, surely the last thing you want is an honest, objective, fair, reasonable valuer. You want somebody who's bent and corrupt to get that number. And well, I mean, we have done a long time ago a, a, one, a Bubble Trouble episode on why it was that these big four accounting firms seem to fall into scandals so frequently. There's a giant <laughs> scandal right now with PwC in Australia. And I mean, they all have their own scandals. And I'm sure we could find a guest or two to come on to Bubble Trouble and, or and, talk, and talk about just how conflicted these accounting firms are, because obviously they're being paid by the, the companies which would like a favorable review. But yes, the ability to look in the cold, light, hard light of day at those private market valuations is not something that all those VC firms have an incentive to do because it might expose them as not having generated returns for their limited partners. They're all doing the same dance. It's a dance that at some point, the lights have to come up and the party's got to come to an end. Yeah. I think last one before I get you smoking on some political signals, but just if I say the dreaded AI word here, I don't want to deter our audience from making it to the end of a podcast, but just it's becoming a little bit passe talking about AI. We're exploring AI opportunities. AI's got transformative powers. When the dust settles, do you think we've kind of gone through a quasi-bubble trouble moment with AI? Look, it, AI has followed the same Clayton Christensen hype cycle and fall into the trough of despair after the giddy heights of insanity. You had this relentless string of media articles since last January predicting a glittering new future and equally a terrifying one to come from AI. But if you ever 
as I have recently tried to engage with a chatbot, they're still terrible. Generative AI <laughs> is Gillette. still evolving into a series of narrow vertical use cases. And and look, I'm not going to say there's not going to be radical changes, but one thing I've constantly said about AI is when you hear that term, you really have to say it's an application of machine learning. And when someone talks about that, you have to say it's actually linear algebra and statistics, mostly regression analysis, and a concept very familiar in the stock markets of mean reversion. And we need to demystify this stuff and get it down to brass tacks of how it actually helps people do their jobs. And most of the big tech companies, whether it's the Google search results you get or the YouTube recommendation engine or Amazon's uh, product listings or Facebook's uh, newsfeed, these are all AI, demystified, call it machine learning, demystified, call it application of statistics and computing. And it's not about these magical transformational powers of AI. It's about this relentless march of incremental innovations and their application to real world problems. So before we get to smoke signals, again, just threading this conversation together, what we learned in part one is if there are troubles bubbling, they're in the private market, which is a known, unknown market. We don't quite know what those bubbles are, how long they're bubbling for, how big they're going to get. And we know that on the downside, these private market valuations clouds could become quite troublesome. Like mm. how long have you been marking your own homework and how badly have you been marking it? On the upside, when people talk about AI being transformative, well, maybe the upside isn't so up after all. It could just be business as normal with a few odds and sods productivity gains once the dust has settled. That doesn't make for a nice brew, does it? Well, it, it, we're just trying to reflect what we see as a reality. And the biggest investors in AI, the companies that have spent more and are hoarding compute resource in the form of NVIDIA chipsets and cloud commuting capacity are the big tech companies because they've seen it coming for a long time and they've been investing in it since, I think it was 10 years ago that Google bought DeepMind. These are not new concepts. Your remarks by I remind me in terms of just how long this revolution has been going on for. <laughs> it feels only right to quote William Gibson, who said, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. To which William <laughs> Page says, well, what do you want to do? Change the future or change the distribution? There typically isn't as much new under the sun as people think. There aren't as many radical inventions. There are more incremental innovations. And, and those can be incredibly helpful. And and add a lot of value. Um, and, and by the way, I, I have a great example that I want to throw out about private market and public market valuations. Now, when we think about the echo bubbles in, in, the, in the stock markets, there's an enormous amount of attention paid to a certain company that's way out of proportion with its economic significance, and that is Twitter. Um, it's now a badly failing, if not highly influential and really deeply polluted, maybe one to $2 billion digital advertising business based on social media. By comparison, Snap is a $5 billion business or Meta and Facebook or Instagram is, is a $120 billion business. Twitter is quite simply a, a tiny business. It's almost completely irrelevant by its size, but it's become this A, cult of personality and this sort of cipher for culture wars. And, and it, it, it's we're ignoring all of the massive crises in the environment and healthcare and infrastructure and global diplomacy when we're sitting there talking about whether or not Twitter has lost 60% of its advertising revenue or its new CEO is working at cross purposes with its mercurial owner. But no one <laughs> in their right mind would believe it's really worth $44 billion anymore, being a billion or $2 billion ads business. And, but it just constantly is in the headlines. Who cares? 
I we know. just need to we, we need to leave this stuff alone and say that you know what we need to focus on the real businesses that matter not these sideshows that just happen to have absurd private market valuations richard your points here about x twitter the amount of attention it gathers relative to the amount of revenue it generates there is an imbalance there and it, we had a back in the early days of bubble trouble we had mike follett come on the podcast to talk about hyper competition in advertising and he always made the point that we spend disproportionately very little time consuming adverts given the amount of time we talk about advertising like you spend less than one percent of one percent of your day consuming adverts but it dominates 20 percent of the conversation and it's just interesting that you put those sort of stark imbalances for our audience so clearly that's very much appreciated now smoke signals you're over there in pittsburgh steeler town home of a football team that's won the Super Bowl five times. Mm -hmm. And then I'm over here in the UK, and I want to thank my father here because my father's become obsessive at watching these brilliant lawyers take down Donald Trump on YouTube. We can put some links in the show. Maybe we can get some of these lawyers on, but he's obsessive about watching the Donald Trump court cases just now. Could you maybe throw to us a couple of smoke signals with regards to political risks? We've covered the financial risks, the economic risks, but you're over there in the States. You've got the potential of Trump running again against Biden. Give it to me in terms of political smoke signals. Well, look, I have some other smoke signals prepared for today. And, but I've also, you asked me to think about this. Can we get Trumped again? And, and I don't want to get into the political mudslinging that goes on. But what is deeply and, and frankly doubly depressing is the way in which, First of all, we have this entrenched political class in so many places around the world that are so fundamentally out of touch with these sort of pig in the python age distributions in leading emerging markets. If you look at Kenya, Nigeria, India, Brazil, dozens of other countries, they're full of young, half the population is, is 25 and under. Middle East, North Africa, young incredible. Incredible. In US and Europe, we have a gerontocracy of 70 or 80 year old politicians or, or older defending their positions. And, which are, which you know, is we, young by Florida standards. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and we, have, we can have a, a Supreme Court justice uh, fail to disclose that he accepts millions of dollars of gifts and backhanders from meeting with conservative donors. And uh, a youthful, very good-looking prime minister of Finland gets excoriated for dancing at a rave party. I mean, this is so depressing to see. And she that was a good dancer, folks, too. She had a good dancer, too. And, you know. And that these old folks are in charge with their heads firmly in the sand about so many of these big tsunamis coming down the pike, whether it's the climate emergency or how the tech is affecting things. And, the, it, and they're supposedly governing countries which increasingly skew towards the youth and should be privileging the, the, the youth in so many ways. But instead, you have a tax code and you have uh, distribution of resources which favors the old. And, and I just it's so depressing to see that happen. The second really distressing aspect of politics, and it's I don't know how to even reflect this properly, but it's this inability to focus. It's like the political class has collective ADHD and they cannot help but lurch from scandalous can't look away diversion to even more inflammatory things. And we all have we respect these government agencies whose responsibility it is to come up with objective views of things, the whether it's to to protect the drugs that we take or the food safety or understand the, the ins and outs of the economy. But these supposedly objective facts that we're supposed to have all of a sudden have become contested terrain. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have an active debate over inflation measurements. I've, you've been very uh, strong about this. But those are sensible arguments which can be made with, without a lot of vitriol. Yeah. And you just cannot 
have this constant, relentless undermining of objective reality, which started back in Karl Rove, uh, Newt Gingrich, 1990s America, where he said, You're, we're all entitled to our own facts. No, we have to agree <laughs> on some facts. And it's something we've touched on our podcast with Kurt Anderson as well. You're just, you're replacing these facts with expedient fantasy. And it's not going to be the way forward to solve all these big, naughty problems we face as a society. It's, it's interesting, though, those two smoke signals bring me back to Martin Wolf from the Financial Times and our friend, listener of the show as well. But just thinking, how do you solve the climate crisis across countries, across yeah. regions, when it's you have these demographic effort. imbalances? What's good for me might not be so good for you, and that doesn't spell equilibrium. Richard, you've let rip on this show, which is fantastic. It's when you're at your very best. I want to thank you for taking us through the private markets. We know we now know a little bit more about the unknown world of private markets, and perhaps we should be a little bit more sensitive to the troubles that seem to be bubbling in that sector. We'll be back next week for more bubble trouble action. We, <laughs> the, the market seems to be writing the script for the show, and our audience keeps on going up as turbulence keeps on picking up. But uh, you've been with myself, Richard Will Page in London, Richard Kramer over in Pittsburgh. This has been Bubble Trouble, and we'll see you next time. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nuzum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.